Hello, Duncan Green here on a rainy afternoon in London. Um, I'm very annoyed because I've just finished my LSE marking, which is this huge lump of work, um, which comes up about this time every year. And I was looking forward to catching up on my reading in the hammock. But uh, sadly, that isn't going to happen for a few days anyway. Uh, and so I'm stuck at my desk in front of the laptop as usual. And I'll talk a bit about a bit more about that in a minute. So I'm here to catch up on the uh, this week's posts on From Poverty to Power. So uh, I'll talk you through them in the usual 10 to 15 minutes. Um, uh, first up was the usual links I liked. Uh, quite a scattergun range this time. There were a few things on COVID-19, a few things on the George Floyd fallout and Black Lives Matter. Um, COVID-19 was interesting. The, the two pieces on, if you like, African specificity, you know, the impact and the response in Africa should be different, according to two authors. So one was Paul Richards, an anthropologist who wrote a really good book on Ebola in West Africa. Um, and he argues that, you know, the, 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 they learned the hard way in Ebola that there's no substitute for social observation. You've got to see how people live and how the way they live interacts with the disease, in the case of Ebola, the burial practices which were spreading the disease. And then you have to design a response which is respectful of the way people live. And in Ebola, they came up with, um, you know, uh, uh, respectful burial practices which which were people were willing to accept. Um, and that that has to be the way that people respond in Africa to COVID-19. There's no good coming in with Western approaches and saying, right, we're just going to roll this out. You've actually got to observe how people live, how the disease interacts with those ways of living, and then design responses which are relevant to, to the context. Um, uh, Clement Sefanyako um, also had a piece which I linked to on links I liked, uh, making a similar argument that um, the lockdown in Africa isn't working or hasn't worked and won't work and that you need to look for other options. And he, he has some very general titles of you know, moderation that you've actually got to balance. The trade-offs might be different between lockdown and economic suffering and food security, for example. Um, you've got to think much more about public education, accountability, participation. You have to design differently because Africa is different, is, is Clement Sefanyako's argument. The second piece was a kind of reflection. So I do I often do these webinars, conversations online, and a particular thing catches my attention. And so I write a blog about it. And last week I did a, a webinar for the International Civil Society Centre in Berlin for some big cheeses in advocacy. People who are running advocacy departments in NGOs um, who are quite senior. And we were having a conversation about um, different aspects of COVID and, and advocacy. I was talking about the paper I wrote a while ago on COVID as a critical juncture. And one of the things that uh, really came up was the, the potential drawbacks of this shift to online activism. Um, and we had a really interesting conversation about that. So some of the drawbacks that could be produced by this shift to the online world. Exclusion. If you're not good at online, if you're older, if you're just uh, if you don't have decent Internet access, suddenly you're one of the unplugged ones is a, a phrase I once heard in Spanish, which is really good. Desenchufados. Um, online activism is even more subject to echo chambers and filter bubbles. Um, you're less likely to bump into people you don't uh, you, know, you disagree with or have an interesting conversation which surprises you. You reinforce your views and get louder, but that may not make you more effective. Um, 
because of the sort of herd instinct online, maybe the Overton window, that window which describes what is publicly acceptable in debate, has got narrower. So everybody can talk about you know one thing now, but even slightly away from that, you're going to get called out. The call out culture is going to take you down. So is that narrowing the range of things we can work on? And what if your issue, the thing you're passionate about, is not in the Overton window? Does that mean you just have to wait or try and get it back into public debate somehow? And then the sheer speed. So the, the half-life of a tweet, which is like half its overall impressions, half the overall uh, impact it has, is 18 minutes. So, you know, so, so online activism uh, is necessarily uh, kind of frenetic. But actually, sometimes you need to take things slow and learn and muse and reflect. It's not online isn't helpful for that. And, and, and so these were some of the points I made. And then a friend of mine, Nicholas Koloff, who's really, really smart, also added to that spontaneity and serendipity that, uh, you know, those chance conversations you have when you're in a workplace or when you're just bumping into people often come up with new ideas. They provoke things. They spark something. If you're all online, all agreeing with each other, that's much harder for that to happen. Although the fact that I had this conversation and that produced the blog maybe slightly um, goes against what Nicholas said. Then the other aspect which I thought was quite interesting was, um, is opportunism such a bad thing? Because I argued in the paper on critical junctures that um, blatant opportunism, just trying to shove your issue uh, into the moment, um, is liable to uh, backfire. And you know, you'll get discredited. And someone said, OK, give me some examples. And I couldn't. So um, maybe it is the case that I'm just being too liberal and sort of um, you know, racked with self-doubt. And that actually it's everybody who's got a particular passion should try and get it into the public debate off the back of a, a crisis like, like COVID-19. Um, I asked around and I didn't get many examples. One, there was some... Uh, there's a lot of online um, humour at the expense of the idea that nature is healing um, because of um, people being stuck in their houses um, and that this is a permanent state of affairs. But there were many examples. So maybe I'm just being over, uh, over self-censorious about saying that opportunism is, is bad and that if you're going to advocate around something, it has to be genuinely linked to the critical juncture, the COVID-19 moment, um, rather than sort of shoehorned in. Then the next day I sort of went further because I've been thinking on a more sort of um, existential plane about what's it been like living online? I mean, I thought I lived online before, but I really didn't. And so what I realized is that um, it's it's having a kind of odd effect on me. I'm, my sense of reality is starting to thin in some areas and thicken in others. So to do with work, all my work interactions now are down the line, you know, so... Um, they all involve, you find out about the world mostly, you uh, share ideas, you have conversations about, about international development, aid, economic justice, all the things I work on um, online. And that means a thinning of reality. That means that you know, what would normally be five senses, what would normally be rubbing shoulders with students and academics and chatting um, becomes this sight and sound conversation and it just I I sometimes I feel like I'm in a really rubbish remake of the matrix and that uh, my sense of you know reality is getting a bit flimsy and this kind of re reminded me of when I was a teenager and I had those teenage fantasies of um you know the whole world's been invented by some weird um scientist and I'm the, I'm the subject of the experiment so all those kind of 
that sort of teenage existential angst is starting to emerge a bit for me. And so I shared that. I called it attenuating reality syndrome, which allowed me to make a joke and say, am I talking through my ARS? Um, and uh, most people, I mean, it resonated with some people and it really didn't with others. So I acknowledged in the post that, you know, this is, in a sense, having this existential moment is um, a mark of privilege. You know, I have a house, I have a garden, I don't have kids bouncing off the walls. Uh, I have my job still. Um, so, you know, I, I, I can allow myself these little moments, whereas other people are in a much more immediate and tangible uh, crisis. So, yes, absolutely. Um, so some people push back on that. Um, other people said, oh, yeah, this is what's happening to me, too. So we shall see. Um, but it is it's a strange time and it's getting stranger as this as working from home and online work, yeah, online existence extends. I think it has a it's going to be interesting to see what sort of more subtle underlying influence it has on people's state of mind. Back to something much more specific the next day, which was uh, Ken Shadlin, who's a professor at the LSE in my department, the International Development Department, um, is a specialist, an absolute uber geek on patents, on the international property rules that govern in particular the pharmaceutical industry around the world. So he wrote a piece called Will Patents Stop COVID Drugs Saving Lives? Um, and, And his conclusion, he looked at what can we learn from the HIV experience? Massive fights over access to medicines for HIV AIDS in, in South Africa and, uh, and many other places. So what can we learn from the HIV experience? And what can we learn from remdesivir, which is a, um, an Ebola treatment which the pharmaceutical company Gilead has repurposed uh, as, a, as a, a COVID treatment? It may well not be the final, you know, the thing we end up with, but it's very far advanced and therefore... Ken argued that you could see what was going to happen with other COVID treatments and COVID drugs um, from looking at remdesivir. And, and he, he, he takes you through it in some detail. I'm not, it's not detail that I'm going to try and replicate because I'll probably get it wrong. Um, but his conclusion is that the really poor countries are probably going to be OK in the sense that they'll either get discount prices from the drugs companies or donors will pick up the tab. The countries that are really going to find it hard to access uh, COVID drugs could well be the middle income countries. Latin America is is Ken's first uh, passion and he's having some very uh, worrying conversations with with, uh, different pharmaceutical companies and governments in Latin America who are saying, look, we're not getting access to these medicines uh, except at very high prices. So he's worried that poor people in middle income countries are going to be the group most adversely affected by this architecture of intellectual property rules rules on knowledge um, so the the advocacy people who worked so hard on hiv aids may have to dust off their old tactics and their old analysis and come into the battle on on behalf of uh, poor people in middle income countries around covid drugs and then finally the final piece of the week was by Arby bagios who was one of my first students at the lse um an incredibly smart filipino um uh who's gone on into the aid business and has been doing some serious thinking and has launched a project called Aid Reimagined. Um, and so I just gave him the soapbox for a day to see uh, for him to set out where he's got to on, on rethinking aid. So <clears throat> what he points out is that, that there's lots of different groups of people calling for reform of the aid model, but they're not really talking to each other. So there's people, you know, lots of conversations about how to improve 
evidence you know how do we know what works how do we know what works quantitatively qualitatively how do we put them together how do we make sure that though that knowledge that we get about what works actually shapes policy you know this is the whole area about better evidence and evidence into policy completely separate discussion saying this is all too top down we need localization we need power and resources pushed to the as close to the ground as you can possibly get because organizations and individuals closest to the ground have a better idea of what to do, what works, what doesn't, what people need, uh, and preferably the people themselves are involved in that, that kind of process. So there's a whole issue around localization and accountability. And then there's another discussion on adaptive management, which I've written about lots and done some case studies on where, you know, instead of coming out with a grand plan and grinding through the plan, come what may, a lot of smart aid programs are saying, OK, we're going to we're going to constantly monitor, pick up feedback about what's working and what isn't. And then every few months we're going to sit down, look at that you know, data on what's working, and what isn't. And we're going to change our plans. So and that's good. That's not a bad thing. That's not a sign of lack of decisiveness or um, uh, poor judgment. It's actually a sign of good judgment that you adapt in relation to the things you learn as you go along. So what Arby is saying is, OK, well, look, these three things, better evidence, localization and adaptive management have to come together. And if they come together, we might have an aid system that actually works because there's, there's so much criticism of the aid system at the moment. Um, something needs to be done. But what he adds to those three things is this sense of he's got a nice phrase restraining ourselves instead of leaping into action. That There's a certain machismo in parts of the aid um, business, you're judged by your burn rate. How much money can you spend? Can you hit your targets? And he's very much saying this is this is not the way to go. You've got to act carefully, you because you there is always the potential to do harm if you spend money or intervene in the in the, in the wrong way. So you act carefully, cross the river by feeling the stones. He didn't use that Chinese proverb, but I'm sure he'd be happy with it. Um, uh, and that is that sort of thoughtful careful approach which is going to mark which 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 is necessary in any kind of reimagined aid system so be very interested to see what you think of arby's uh, arby's big idea um and uh on that i will say have a good weekend and goodbye